This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, the link between your home and your health. It's strong, but often forgotten. Another thing we take for granted when we ask for underwater births, candlelight and no interventions in labour is modern obstetric care and the dreadful complications it prevents. And the debate about artificial intelligence, AI and machine learning, where people like Tesla's Elon Musk warn of the dangers, while others like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg think it's the way of the future and that Musk is just fear-mongering. Well, the debate is alive and well in medicine, with some saying artificial intelligence could take over a large number of doctors' tasks, with pathology and radiology, medical imaging, being first off the rank, with machines reading x-rays and analysing biopsies. The Royal Australian New Zealand College of Radiologists, which also includes radiation oncologists, has been trying to get onto the front foot and has released a set of principles which should govern the introduction of artificial intelligence into healthcare before they say it's too late. The chair of the committee was Professor Liz Kenny of the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome to the Health Report. My pleasure, Norman. So you chaired this committee. Is this because radiologists are going to be an extinct species and you're trying to preserve them forevermore? No, Norman, not at all. In fact, exactly the opposite. And I think this is a dawning awareness of the potential benefit that it can bring and the potential harm if we don't get this right. And it was our view that Australia is actually seriously lagging behind the US, the UK and Europe, actually, in this regard. In what way are we lagging? We actually don't have a regulatory framework. The TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, has actually just released a consultation paper on the regulation of software as a medical device. And the Australian Human Rights Commission, in conjunction with the World Economic Forum, has again just released a white paper on artificial intelligence, its governance and leadership. So there are two arms to the college. One is radiology, which is medical imaging. The other is the arm is what you do, which is radiation oncology, what some people call radiotherapy for cancer care. Well, let's start with medical imaging because people are saying, well, the good side of artificial intelligence is that it can eliminate a well-known phenomenon in medical imaging is that you can show the same x-ray to lots of different radiologists and there will be some variation in interpretation, some of which could be critical and the artificial intelligence could eliminate that and so eliminating that, perhaps eliminate the role of the radiologist in reading the x-ray. So AI won't actually eliminate that and if anything could make it a fundamental error for a whole raft of patients. We actually don't have any classification rules for software as a medical device. So your worry is risk that... Um... Oh, it's major risk, Norman. I mean, you can, because it's not classified, you can just download software by the user just to, directly from the publisher without the need to actually have it assessed. There's no entity currently in Australia monitoring the safety and performance of you know, directly imported software. There's no one accountable. One of the things that you talk about in your initial document, which is about a set of principles to govern artificial intelligence and machine learning, is safety and bias. So safety implies that you're just importing it, nobody's monitoring whether or not it's making the right decisions or the bad decisions. Where does bias creep in with artificial intelligence? Oh, this is actually of critical importance and essential. When people are designing the algorithms 
around which, for example, in radiology, imaging may be interpreted. If you actually have algorithms developed by people in isolation, and say if you, you know, if you were developing an algorithm for interpreting chest X-rays, for example, in a population where there was a very high endemic incidence of TB or in a population of patients where there was very heavy smoking or in elderly people or in very young people or in people with specific conditions and then you try and apply that across the population as a whole, we're very likely to get things profoundly wrong. Because essentially what you're seeing there is a white mass and it could be a cancer, it could be TB and what the radiologist does is exert judgment on it that, you know, this person's young, so it's unlikely to be cancer, and they've just arrived from a TB endemic area, therefore you've got to be watching out for that. Absolutely. But can machine learning get there in the end, that they can add in all those things? Well, we don't know. And so we make a whole pile of assumptions that we can develop machines that have the same degree of intelligence, reasoning and logic and take into account all of those human factors as a human brain. And today, that's actually a long way removed from where we are. I mean, we can just see, you know, machine learning eventually helping to absolutely improve care. You know, you can just imagine that for a clinical radiologist coming in and to have their workflow prioritised, to have access to prior imaging for the system to have pulled that in, to have pulled in all of the relevant medical conditions, concerns, past history... What a difference that would make instead of someone spending half of their time trying to find out all of those things. And then allowing that to, you know, just really facilitate hardcore clinical engagement with the rest of the clinical teams. We see this as an enormous potential benefit. And of course, in my world of radiation oncology, remembering that both disciplines, even today, use an enormous amount of digital information and serious, serious computing power, in, uh, certainly in radiation oncology. And so you know, knowledge-based planning, helping to make the planning of treatment faster. So, so you see it more as an assistant rather than a robotic replacement? Remember, medicine is not just all around facts and figures. And so how you actually pull the emotional and social intelligence into this, I just don't know that that's ever going to be something that robotic AI can do. So are radiologists and radiation oncologists who are using artificial intelligence software at the moment exposing themselves to liability? To be honest, this is part of the regulatory framework. If we start to import algorithms without any knowledge of them, without any understanding as to where they've come from and apply them, I think we would suggest that there's liability potentially on multiple counts, be it on the individual, be it on the service, the system within which they are practicing. You know, one of the things that we don't want to see is we don't want to see that sort of concern, which is real today, hinder the advancement of this in the most proper way. And so this is really why we need to get the whole thinking around the ethics of it, the regulation of it, the importance of this from an individual patient's point of view and the protection of them at all times. So is this a lobbying document to governments to get regulations in place? I mean, where do you want to go we're, from here? 
We absolutely want that discussion to start and to happen and I do think that the TGA has actually put out the first important document. It's a consultation document and then the Human Rights Commission is calling for governance and leadership in this area. So I think it is time. And the last thing I think we can afford to see is all these algorithms creeping in, people using them, and us doing a power of harm, because that will send us back not just to base zero, but a long way behind. So this is us putting up our hand and saying, we want to contribute to this, we want to help lead this as professions where there are trillions of bits of digital information and ripe for doing things well and catastrophically doing things badly. Liz Kenny, thank you very much. Professor Liz Kenny is a radiation oncologist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital and chaired the Committee on AI for the College of Radiology. I'm Norman Swan and you're listening to The Health Report here on RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. Today in New Zealand, the World Health Organization released its guidelines for housing and health. The link between the two is strong. Globally, there are millions of avoidable deaths each year from respiratory diseases, other infections, lead poisoning, high and low indoor temperatures and fires. And we in Australia harbour such housing problems, especially in Aboriginal communities. But myths abound about what these problems are and what causes them. The other day, I spoke to the person launching the WHO guidelines, David Jacobs, who's Chief Scientist at the National Centre for Health or Housing, Healthy Housing, I should say, in the United States, and Paul Torzillo, who's a respiratory physician at the University of Sydney with a long interest in Aboriginal health and housing. David Jacobs. We know, for example, in New Zealand that 10% of hospital emissions per year are attributed to household crowding. We know that India recorded over 2,600 deaths in 2012 due to collapsing buildings. In Kyrgyzstan, we have data showing that household crowding causes deaths from tuberculosis. And even so, in, in Europe, it's quite a high level of disease burden. Yes, we know that 15% of new childhood asthma cases in Europe can be attributed to indoor dampness and the mold that comes out of it. David, what do the guidelines recommend? Principally, the guidelines deal with crowding, indoor cold and insulation, indoor heat, home-based injuries, and accessibility. Overcrowding is hard to deal with because that's an economic issue. Well, part of the definition of healthy housing is also affordable housing. It doesn't make any sense to treat a child with an asthma attack in the hospital only to have the child return to the home environment that made them sick in the first place. We're shifting the costs of inadequate housing to our medical care sector. So ideally what we want to do is prevent the diseases in the first place by modifying housing conditions that produce the disease. And how modifiable are they? Just take Europe, for example. You've got a large housing stock, which is pre-glasnost, which are notorious for being damp, having no insulation, no Mm -hmm. air conditioning, communal heating, which often breaks down. So it's fine having the WHO guidelines, but what are you going to do about these massive Leninist apartment blocks just taking, we'll come to Australia in a minute. Well, so controlling moisture is tied to how you ventilate housing. There are established procedures for how to do that, preventing leaks through the envelope, dealing with airflow balances so that there isn't the kind of condensation that might occur, proper insulation, especially in the era of climate change. Paul, you've spent a lot of your career looking at Aboriginal housing and the health problems that arise from that. And if you talk to Aboriginal communities and you say, what's the one thing that you would have in your community that would make the big difference? 
they almost always say housing and better housing. What's the situation in Aboriginal communities? The situation's still poor. We started to look at this in the 1980s. We tried to define exactly what illnesses do they cause and what's the hardware, what's the stuff you need in a house to help you stay healthy. Be able to wash yourself, your kids, your blankets, your bedding, store, prepare, cook food, control temperature. We've then done about 25 years of work and we've found remarkably consistent findings. So when you go into an Aboriginal house across the country, we've looked at about 9,000 houses in about 230 communities affecting about 60,000 people. You've got a functioning shower in about a third of those houses. You've got electrical safety in about 11%. 11%? and you can store, prepare and cook food in about 8%. 8%. And some of these houses are not old houses. New houses don't seem to perform much better than old houses. So they're badly built to start with? When you look at this hardware, why does it fail? Particularly the electrical and plumbing issues, why do they fail? 8% of them fail because of overuse or damage or anything you might even refer to as vandalism. A quarter of this is due to bad installation, poor initial construction, bodgy work, not properly inspected before the houses were built. But 70% is due to a lack of routine maintenance that any house would need. So this is stuff that would go wrong in any house, but it it doesn't get fixed. It doesn't get fixed, and that's because maintenance is not planned or funded or conducted. So what we so people need, think, I've built a house, I've built 20 houses in an, Abor- an Aboriginal community, I've done my job, move on to the next Aboriginal community and exactly. just be proud of the houses yeah. you've built. So if all we do is build new houses, we won't fix this problem. And one issue is getting sustainable local maintenance programs happening in a long-term fashion in communities across the country where we do proactive surveillance. So you try and check things before they break down, costs less to fix, keeps the house healthier. Despite this 25 years of work, we've not really been able to make a sustainable major impact on housing policy. And Indigenous housing policy remains this intractable, unsolvable problem. And the National Partnership on Remote Housing hasn't been renewed. It hasn't been. So one of the things that the Henry Halloran Trust funded... Henry Halloran Trust? Henry Halloran Trust is a philanthropic trust attached to Sydney University that does housing research and facilitated David coming through here. They've also funded a Housing for Health incubator research program led by Professor Tess Lee at Sydney Uni, looking at a number of issues, but particularly looking at why is this such an intractable issue. If you talk to Aboriginal communities, they say you've got all these white folks coming in and telling us what to do and don't actually involve us. And if they actually talk to us, we would come up with solutions for you. You're trying to impose stuff on us rather than working with us. Well, I've never been to an Aboriginal community where they said we don't want our toilet to work. I've never been to one where they said we don't want to be able to wash our kid. And I've never been to one, especially lately, that didn't say it's too hot and it costs us too much to control the temperature. So the question is, how do you respond to those requests? In a sustainable way. In a sustainable way. Well, I'm looking at you. There obviously needs to be new housing because there's a housing deficit. But we think that unless we can implement these local 
sustainable maintenance programs with access to plumbers, electricians and plumbers carpenters, across the country. We're not going to keep these houses functioning so and this, we're going to lose housing stock. What are the health consequences of what you've just described? The first is the high rates of infectious disease in Aboriginal kids, order of magnitude, greater rates of respiratory infection and ear disease. There's lots of evidence that they are impacted on hugely by the ability to wash and keep yourself clean. If the hardware doesn't work, you won't be able to clean your kids, wash their face and hands. Childhood illness has a big impact on long-term chronic disease. Infective inflammatory conditions drive coronary artery disease. Early respiratory infection drives chronic lung disease, etc., so um, describe a community to me in Australia where it's working. Look, I, th- I That was think, a long breath. Yeah. I think the evidence is that housing hardware is in a pretty poor state right across the country. I think there are a number of communities in New South Wales where it's been improved because New South Wales has been the one state that's really taken up this work and focused on it. And I think one of the reasons is it's been incorporated into the health department rather than just left with housing. Labor and coalition governments have sustained it. And what does WHO calculate as the return on investment in terms of health problems avoided? There are returns on investment out of Europe and also out of the United States. There's basically $1 in cost for a $5 benefit in asthma-related home visits. For lead poisoning prevention, it's for each dollar in lead hazard control, you get back $1.36. So it, it makes financial sense. The problem is who pays the costs and who reaps the benefits. Right now, we're basically absorbing the costs of inadequate housing in our healthcare system, which doesn't make sense. But the housing providers don't make the health investments because they don't realize a return on that investment. So it's basically the classic market failure. We need to find ways, and that's what the WHO guidelines do. We need to find ways to concretely describe the housing characteristics that will have a health benefit. Country towns in Australia have shortages of everything. It's not just doctors and nurses and psychologists. It's also tradespeople. Is anybody trying apprenticeship schemes in Aboriginal communities so that kids growing up have a trade? The answer to that is yes, in some places, but it's simplistic to think that that's something that's going to solve the problem. The numbers are small. It is happening around the country, but apprenticeships take a long time. They require someone to keep someone employed for a long time. This is a question of years. So we do have to have fly-out teams or what? It'll be a mixture. So there'll be some places across the country where there will be local people who've got a trade skill and trades accreditation. There'll be other places where you'll have to bring people in and out. There has to be workarounds in different regions across the country which allow you to achieve your goals. Locally employed people looking at hardware, doing daily maintenance, who've got access to plumbers and electricians and tradespeople to come in and fix the problems that require tradies. And it'll work differently in different places across the country. So if there's a tradie listening, we've got lots of tradies listening to Radio National, can they do, and they want to help, can they, where would they go, what would they do? I think there's lots of opportunities for tradies to help in this sort of stuff. But is there an organisation that brings it together? I guess there are different NGOs, there are groups of 
plumbers who work, there are groups of engineers who work. There's probably not an overarching easy access point for the whole of the country. If there is, I'm not aware of it. In the U.S., we have a National Healthy Housing Training Center and Network. It's 20 universities. We train tradespeople. We train code inspectors and housing inspectors on how to recognize and mitigate housing-related health conditions. It's not something that trades people usually learn going through their apprenticeship. And finally, what, <laughs> what impact does climate change have on all this? The energy consequences are profound. In the U.S., our weatherization program, which adds insulation and air sealing and the like, also includes some health interventions. If you think about it, it's kind of silly to go ahead and do the insulation but not fix the malfunctioning smoke alarm. So they're, they're increasingly integrated. But our houses and the ventilation in them is a big energy penalty. If we're not smart about it, then we'll end up using more energy than is needed. I mean, in some Aboriginal communities, they're living in summers now where it's above 45 degrees. High 40s for a few weeks over this recent summer. Places in WA and Central Australia with temperatures of 51 and 52. Everybody acknowledges globally that climate change is going to impact on poor populations first and early and hardest. And Aboriginal people in lots of these communities are already being hit by that. The costs of thermal control are going to be prohibitive for those populations and we need to be thinking about multiple approaches to that right now. Thank you very much to you both. Thank you. David Jacobs, who's Chief Scientist at the National Centre for Healthy Housing in the United States, and Paul Torzillo, who's a respiratory physician at the University of Sydney with a long interest in Aboriginal health and housing. Two Australian doctors are at the forefront of an international effort to consign a horrific childbirth injury to the past. The doctors head the International Federation of Gynaecologists and Obstetricians Fistula Program, which has set a deadline of 2030 for its elimination. As Kerry Worthington reports, it's a massive task with an estimated 1.2 million women worldwide needing, tre needing treatment for obstetric fistulas. Professor A.J. Rane and Dr. Andrew Browning have spent a great deal of their working lives trying to eliminate obstetric fistulas. That's where a hole may develop between the vagina and bladder or rectum after a difficult prolonged labour. A.J. Rane is a professor of urogynaecology at James Cook University in Townsville, who's also established a charity hospital in India for women with genital injuries. He says fistulas are a human rights issue. It's a neglected public health issue and it puts these women into a terrible situation where they're leaking either bowel fluid or bladder fluid or both through their genital tracts 24-7. They're smelling 24-7. The babies are usually dead. They're kicked out of their villages. They're socially ostracized. Their marriages break down. Nobody will even feed them. They're usually malnourished. The World Health Organization says each year tens of thousands of women worldwide develop obstetric fistula, overwhelmingly in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and in geographically remote, economically poor areas. Obstetrician Andrew Browning, who's the medical director of Australian charity the Barbara May Foundation, says the only reason obstetric fistulas aren't seen in Australia or other developed countries is because births are generally monitored by highly trained medical staff and caesareans are an option if a woman is in labour for too long. Indeed, the world's first fistula hospital was built in New York 
1855 because fistulas were common in America and Europe uh, back then. You know, one in 15, one in 20 women used to die in labour back then. They used to have a lot of fistulas as well. But that hospital is now closed in New York because with the advent of safe obstetrics for all women, safe obstetric care in hospitals, women no longer get fistulas in the developed world, if we can call it that. I mean, there are some rare isolated examples of fistulas, but more due to operations gone wrong or infections or other diseases, but not due to these long, you know, five, seven day labour. You'll never see that. The International Federation of Gynaecologists and Obstetricians, known as FIGO, is the global governing body for specialists in the field. One of its main projects is fistula surgery training, overseen by the Committee for Fistula and Genital Trauma, led by the Australians Professor Rane and Dr Browning. AJ Rane explains that fistula surgeons need specific training that requires a gynaecological or urological surgical background, but that the best results come from training up local doctors. When I was training in Britain, some British doctors would go to Africa and talk about how they held a fistula camp for two weeks and operated on 149 women and how exciting it was to be there. And then what? You left them. You never went back for another year. And so when Figo invited me to chair uh, this fistula committee, we decided that we would turn it around and we have now managed to train 58 full-time surgeons in Africa and Bangladesh. And between them, in the last four years, they have done 7,800 cases with a 90% success rate. We have five training centers now, two in Kenya, two in uh, Tanzania, and one in Addis Ababa where all these new surgeons are being trained. So we're trying to train local surgeons, which is much more acceptable to the women as well because they speak the language. The focus on training new doctors raises the question of why address the consequences of unsafe childbirth rather than try to prevent it in the first place. Professor Rane says the FIGO training initiative is one part of a three-pronged strategy to reduce what he calls the three delays in diagnosis, mobilisation and medical intervention. Really, if we want to prevent fistulas, it is all about safe obstetric care and really very simple dictums like a woman in her giving birth for the first time should never see a sunrise and a sunset in labor. Anything more than 12 hours needs to be moved. These are simple messages. And what really happens is it reduces the delay of diagnosis and the delay of transport. And then the third delay of treatment hopefully doesn't occur when they get to the hospital that they should. I completely agree with you. NGOs have been remiss, but I think FIGO has realized it's, it's an organization that has the ability to also focus in, uh, a lot on child spacing, on contraception, and also safe obstetric care. And therefore, really, my aim is that by 2030, the FIGO Fistula Committee should cease to exist. We should have systems in place where we have prevented a lot of fistulas, and no woman should wait more than six weeks to have her fistula fixed because we've trained so many surgeons to look after them. That would be the real victory of this program. The FIGO-trained surgeons are also working through a backlog of more than a million women with untreated fistulas. But Dr Andrew Browning says merely training local doctors to do the procedure properly is not enough. The frustrating thing is that fistula work is charity work. These patients are too poor to pay, so often 
the surgeons will be very enthusiastic for a while. They'll do fistula surgery for some years and their skills will build up, but then they'll have responsibilities of family and so forth and they'll leave and do something else. On the other hand, Dr Browning says the aim of eliminating fistula is achievable. We've done it in the West. Uh, so, well, why can't we do it in the rest of the world? And it doesn't cost a great deal. With the Barbara May Foundation, we build hospitals and we can actually build a reasonable maternity unit for about half a million dollars. And to run it with our doctors, our midwives, it only costs 160 Australian dollars to ensure a safe delivery for a woman. That's four clinic visits, a delivery, including a caesarean and a post-delivery visit um, checkup as well. So it doesn't take a, a lot of money to prevent fistulas, but it's just the willpower. Um, unfortunately, it's extremely difficult to raise money for fistula prevention, maternal health care. I mean, fistula treatment, it is a very emotive subject and to raise money for fistula treatment is quite easy. People say, oh, I'd love to to help a fistula lady, which is lovely and it needs to be done, but to prevent it, it's not quite so compelling for donors. So yeah, we really do struggle to raise the money um, and it's been estimated that across Africa, we need to build 2,000 new obstetric units and run them to prevent fistulas from happening. Kerry Worthington reporting there. And on the law report this week, strangulation and family violence. Some parts of Australia now have specific offences that deal with this horrible form of violence. And across the country, there's a growing understanding that we need to improve the training of first responders. You've been listening to The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.